Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. We're going to get into uh, what's going on on the political scene here on the national level. Of course, the election is on. And what has become a, almost a regular feature of every election now is local candidates uh, getting chastised for some of the comments they've made in social media in the past. Uh, we've said on this program before that look at if you ever want to find out what your past is like, just run for public office because somebody will actually discover it for you and, and tell you the good, the bad, and the ugly of it. Usually the bad and the ugly. Uh, party leaders have been asking questions right now about social media posts. A couple of conservatives were in hot water, and uh, conservative leader Andrew Scheer spent a, an inordinate amount of time, I guess, so, this past weekend uh, trying to talk about uh, what his uh, two of his, anyway, his candidates were saying. And plus, of course, uh, Scheer himself has been on the hot seat uh, for some of the comments he's made in the past with the resurfacing of uh, some old speeches that he's made. Joining us to talk about this uh, natural phenomenon in politics, I guess, is uh, good friend Peter Grave, professor of political science at McMaster University. Good morning, Peter. How are you doing today? Great, thanks. Uh, this is this has become the new normal now, hasn't it? Uh, you know, so-and-so runs for office, they're going to be the local candidate for whichever public party it is, and uh, invariably uh, they start digging into the past, and boy, they usually have to dig too far to find out some dirt on them. Yeah, that's certainly the case. I mean, I think we live our lives much more publicly, perhaps, than we did in the past. Uh, many more things that we say are documented, and so... Um, yeah, it's not too hard uh, to find in some cases things that really go beyond uh, what we would deem uh, sort of acceptable discourse in this day and age, you know, as a sort of a way of talking about politics that would ensure that all citizens felt welcome to, to participate. Is it fair to, to be able, you know, to bring up the past like that? I mean, because you, know, you hear the justification for this, Peter. Like, come on, we were all young, we all make mistakes, we all have probably said some things that we probably regret at some point in the future. Yeah, and that's all true. I mean, I think I think there's um, a complexity of how people feel about these things. I mean, we do, uh, on the one hand, have a society which is now really kind of zero tolerance for, uh, you know, sexism and racism, but uh, there's also a sense in which we understand that people can change and uh, uh, people may hold views in certain periods and come to renounce them later. Uh, but in the time of politics, uh, it's not really time to talk about that in a way. It's, uh, you know, parties don't want to spend two or three days talking about, uh, you know, whether someone has changed their views uh, and so forth. And so uh, there's a real temptation to just say, uh, let's, you know, get rid of the, the candidates and move on. Which they have had done, had to do rather, I guess, in extreme examples. Uh, actually, Shear's comments uh, this past weekend, Peter, I found interesting. Uh, he said he wouldn't boot anybody out for making what some people are considering to be racist or homophobic comments as long as they apologize for them. Is is that fair? Well, I mean, again, I think, uh, I mean, particularly for a party that has a fairly strong base uh, among Christians, uh, I mean, there's a kind of religious base that is quite, uh, fam- you know, familiar and uh, interested in the idea of kind of personal redemption and change. Um, but the question is, of course, like, what counts for that? <laughs> How far does one have to go? Um, you know, it's. Uh, I suspect ultimately Canadians do feel that we have to understand these things on a case-by-case basis, and you have to understand how people change their views over time or made amends and so on. Um, but in this instance, uh, you know, it seems like uh, some speechwriters or, you know, hacks in the party office put out uh, a statement saying this person apologizes, and somehow uh, we're meant to judge that that then makes it okay that they said really horrible <laughs> things publicly. Uh, so, I mean, I think, you know, ultimately Canadians probably do want uh, a way of thinking about how people could uh, apologize, but I'm not sure they're going to accept uh, this idea that 
uh, you know, that counts. It's a bit like, you know, if, if you're told, if you tell a kid they have to apologize to another kid or they won't get their dessert, uh, they'll probably apologize, but you wonder about the sincerity of it. Well, that's, yeah, that's the thing. Maybe it's the skeptic of me. I don't know, Peter, but when you see these and they say, oh, come on, it was something that was 10 years ago and, and I don't think that way anymore, so I apologize if I've offended anybody. That, that seems to be almost the theme when, when the, that apology uh, comes forward on this. But, you know, if they're truly contrite about it, why did they wait until it was exposed before they apologized? Yes, and I mean, you know, generally, how do we wait apologies, right? We try to figure out the sincerity of them. We we try to see whether the person really acknowledges a potential harm or the, the real harm that they've given. Uh, we, you know, see whether they really articulate the value that they've transgressed with that. Uh, we see if they try to make amends. Uh, you know, there's a variety of different ways that we assess where someone is uh, sincere in their apology. So simply saying that, well, look, they put out a press release saying <laughs> they're sorry they said that, maybe uh, isn't you know that likely to convince us. Uh, I mean, we had last time in uh, the Hamilton area, of course, we had Alex Johnstone That's right, yeah. uh, caught up in a question of making somewhat uh, flippant comments about uh, a concentration camp. And, uh, you know, again, that was a sort of instructive example of someone who, who wasn't forced to step down, but, you know, then did take it upon herself to uh, undergo a fair bit of education and to, you know, visit and make, you know, really understand why she had done something wrong in being so flippant. You know, that's a case where you can probably say, well, yeah, well, there, the apology is probably, uh, it's probably genuine <laughs> because, you know, she did a lot to make sense of what was the problem and learn from it. But in most of these cases, it seems really, it's not even clear that they even wrote the apology or whether it was written for them. And in that context, uh, we should ask questions, I think, a bit about the leadership of political parties. You know, to what extent are they really trying to keep some of these things out of politics by their choices of candidates and by imposing consequences on candidates who have spoken that way? And how much are they really just looking, you know, as you point out, as a way to make things go away uh, by issuing apologies, which maybe are of the nature of sorry, not sorry. I, I did a little counting after I saw Mr. Shear's stories and the comments this weekend, and this just going back to the last election four years ago, five conservative candidates uh, either were kicked out or, or had to resign before the election, four liberal candidates, and two NDP candidates either resigned or were booted out uh, for the nefarious past comments. Alex Johnson, of course, as you mentioned, uh, was was not kicked out. I mean, she you know did a mea culpa and, and as you say, tried to, to better herself and educate herself. And there was a handful of others. Uh, from all three parties that, that were in similar circumstances that apologized and didn't actually have to resign. But it, it seems to be a growing problem, though, Peter. Well, yeah, I don't know if the problem's growing or whether ultimately our, our social media histories are getting longer and the people uh, who are trying to dig this stuff up are getting more effective at it. Um, yeah, I mean, it remains to be seen how many more of these cases are brought out. And I presume part of uh, Mr. Shear's uh, decision to, you know, make up a new rule this weekend was that he feared that the Liberals were going to be doing this repeatedly through the whole campaign whenever he campaigned with particular candidates. And so I think it's a way of trying to head it off uh, from his point of view. Uh, uh, it remains to be seen whether uh, that's accepted or where the media ask him the questions each time to say, well, how are you applying your rule and does this count as an apology and so forth. But, yeah, maybe becoming more, uh, maybe becoming more common simply because we have... Uh, in a sense, when we post on social media, we create potential dirt about ourselves. <laughs> so, uh, you know, we now have thousands of tweets behind us in some cases, and 10 years on Facebook. Uh, you know, some people probably have a MySpace account hanging around somewhere in their past. Uh, and so, uh, you know, there's a lot there's a lot to go to go through. So on the one hand, I think the people who are vetting candidates, uh, you know, uh, have a harder time just having to work through the whole mass of that. I mean, you have to think that for 
for parties are doing probably 400 to 700 of these vettings in a year uh, because they're you know they vet at the stage where people announce they're going to run for a, a nomination and so that's that's a lot of uh mundane junk that you have to sift through uh perhaps to find some kind of comment and even there i mean it may be that people have erased them but back in the day someone took a screen capture and decided to to set, uh, sell that uh, not sell that to send it to the media or to an opposition party that's that's really the subtext here isn't it it's, it's the vetting system that the candidate the parties have to do uh and and you're right i mean i understand that if you know if an individual wants to run as as that representative for that political party uh they they to a, se- a certain extent, have to kind of rely on the, on the, the integrity of the individual to say, "Hey, did you guys do anything silly when you were younger? Did you write anything? Did you join some club that is going to, you know, look bad or something?" Uh, you know, sometimes you just forget about it. I mean, because like you say, of the hundreds of thousands of tweets that you did, you know, ten years ago or whatever the case might be, you might have forgotten about that one, but somebody else didn't. So you, you really have to rely on that because you can't expect the party to do all that digging, can you? Well, I mean, I guess. <laughs> they, uh, they, do do it, then, they do it for the opposition. Uh, I guess they want to uh, find some dirt on them. Yeah, and some people want to run, and so maybe they're less forthcoming about their second or third Facebook account. Yeah. <laughs> you know, that sort of, that sort of uh, you know, slips through. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, vetting is important. Uh, and there are times when I, you know, when I see these uh, things that are put out, uh, and it really becomes centered on the candidates. And, uh, you know, thinking about some more recent events in Hamilton, I wonder how much, too, we might actually ask more of our political leaders when these things come up to actually just state really clearly the the range of what they consider acceptable and unacceptable. Uh, because often, obviously, the leaders don't actually want to get uh, uh, brought in to discuss the, the particulars of some unfortunate, you know, post on social media. But in some ways, by saying, oh, that's unacceptable, they have to go. Uh, they don't really articulate a, a broader set of values for a political community to say, we can't talk this way, and here's why we can't talk this way, because it means that, you know, these people don't feel like they can participate fully in our political life. And it's, you know, and it's an affront to our dear idea of being a democratic citizenship, that we all participate on a basis of equality. You know, it would be nice if we had our leaders, I think, doing that a bit more, rather than simply, uh, you know, trying to make things go away and not actually enunciating the principles that allow us to have, you know, good debates, good discussions and, and free and fair elections. And I guess we're all guilty of that because uh, nonetheless, even though, the, you know, they'll talk about integrity and, no, we're going to go high, we're not going to go into the mud, we're not, uh, they all do it. I mean, they, as you mentioned, they've got teams of, of people now whose only job during the campaign is to find out what they can about the other candidates and, and try to define that candidate or that party. Yeah, well, I mean, an election, well, this one is, what, about 40 days? And yeah. So that's uh, that's kind of... Uh, as, as these parties think about these things as scripts, in some ways that's 40 lines in a script. <laughs> and so if you manage to get three or four uh, of these candidates, uh, suddenly, you know, a party's working with a shorter script. They've lost three of their lines or four of their lines. And, you know, each of those lines, in a way, is also a half a million dollars each day these parties are spending trying to get, like, one line or one idea uh, through uh, in the media coverage and, and into our uh, an impression of what that party is and what it plans to do. And so, yeah, the parties really uh, have an impatience with this because they don't want to lose that capacity. And clearly then for the the other parties, they want to throw the other parties off and prevent them from getting their message out. But in the long run, uh, it probably doesn't improve the quality of our ability to make collective decisions. And, 
uh, in some ways maybe prevents us from really enunciating yeah, the higher principles about what we don't want uh, in our politics. It's got to be frustrating, I would think, for the party leaders, though, isn't it, Peter? Because, as you say, in a 40-day campaign like this, I mean, you want to stay on message. You, you wanna, If you're going to Waterloo or to Hamilton or to Windsor, I mean, you've got a, a prepared speech, and this is what we're going to do, or this is the announcement we're going to make. Uh, you don't want to waste time playing defense, trying to defend or, or try to explain away something like this. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I think it was maybe uh, the plan to, was to repeal the carbon tax was uh, the statement that Mr. Shear wanted to make on Saturday in, in Ottawa, and suddenly <laughs> the story was, look at this candidate running into her car claiming she had to go canvas rather <laughs> than answer her questions. So, uh, yeah, I mean, that's that's a loss of that capacity to, to, to make a big point uh, and to connect with Canadians on an important part of policy, point of policy, at least from the point of view of the Conservative campaign. When these things come to the to the forefront, like they have this past weekend, does it really have an impact on voters, or is it really just, uh, if you didn't like that party or that candidate, well, you like them li- even less now? Is, is it actually strong enough? Uh, is our moral compass maybe strong enough to say, oh, I can't defend that, I can't, I can't tolerate that, I can't vote for that party or that, that candidate now because of what I've just learned? Well, I think at the level of the individual candidate, it probably does enter into a number of people's calculus, right? Uh, you know, you may be a conservative-minded voter, but mm, maybe I don't want to vote for someone who, you know, holds very strange views about my fellow citizens. Uh, you know, so, I mean, I think it, it does play a bit in, in the decisions at the local level. At the national level, uh, I think parties uh, maybe two elections ago were really scared that it would lead to a negative impression that they weren't serious and competent that they would let people such as, you know, whatever, you know, who would hold those views or, you know, have past problems with domestic abuse and so on, to have them uh, run was a a bad sign on the party. I think now that it seems to be most of the parties uh, having these problems, uh, that's that's a bit reduced. Um, But it certainly is a case that if you do see a bunch of candidates who have a similar profile of problems emerge, then people may begin to ask questions, well, you know, do do I really want to support that? Uh, you know, the counterpoint to that is in the last Alberta election, the NDP seemed to have a story a day pretty much about mm-hmm. United Conservative Party candidates. And at a certain point, Jason Kenney said, well, I'm not asking them to step down anymore, except in the most egregious cases. Uh, didn't seem, you know, at a certain point, uh, I think the NDP began to be seen as a party that was slinging mud. Um, and so, uh, and certainly it didn't seem to discourage a lot of people for voting for the Conservative Party in, in Alberta. So, yeah, maybe, you know, the impact is still a bit limited. Uh, people care about that, but they maybe also care about the programs of the parties more. And, and I mean, even if it doesn't move them to say, okay, I was going to vote for that party, now I'm going to vote for this one, even if that doesn't happen, they may, as an alternative, just say, well, I'm not voting at all then. I just forget it because I can't do that. And that's just as harmful to that candidate and that party. That's true. I mean, uh, certainly, you know, negative uh, campaigning has been shown to uh, reduce turnout. You know, the point is less to make people switch parties or, you know, no, lo- no longer support their party, but just not be excited enough uh, to go out and vote because, you know, the, that party's been dragged through the mud or has been shown to be lacking in, in whatever ways. I'm not sure if it plays quite as much at the level of candidates again. It might, it might for, you know, your local candidate where you, you are like, well, I'm, I'm for this party and my local candidate's terrible, so I'll just stay home. Um, but I think for the most part, it's more at the level of messages about parties and what they stand for that the negative would have a bigger impact. Uh, it's a crazy time when elections are called and the, uh, the activities of the clients and everything else. It's always great to get your perspective and add some clarity to this, Peter. Thanks so much for this today. You're welcome. Peter Grafe, uh, political science professor at McMaster University. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML.